Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Jonas Sachs is author of Winning the Story Wars, and he's co-founder of Free Range Studios, a brand and innovation company which pioneered some of the first successful internet social change campaigns. His work has earned him Best of Honors three times at the South by Southwest Festival, a Webby Award, and inclusion in the Sundance Film Festival. His latest book, which we're going to be talking about here today, Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah, welcome to AMA Edgewise. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Okay. Broken light bulb on the cover. How to be nimble and bold. Suppose I'm not, let's just suppose, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. You know what I mean? What's in this book for me? Yeah, you know, the cover is kind of bold and and a little bit crazy with this exploding light bulb. But the idea is not just how do you get out there and take the maximum number of risks. The idea is that we run into change all the time and we can sense that we need to change in order to meet it, right? But how do you change yourself when that's really difficult for the human mind to do? So if you've been stuck in some kind of rut in your leadership, in your management, in your career, and you know it's time to try something new, but you don't know where to start, this is kind of a way of tapping into that ability to change your thinking patterns wherever you're stuck at the moment. I'm just, I'm thinking this is how old I am. Don't judge. But historic titles like Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed, you know what I mean? I'm like, okay. No, it's okay. okay. (laughs) Next question. In the book, you talk about this, and I kind of know where you're going with it, but it'd be interesting to hear you explain it to our audience. How can deep expertise, which back in the old days was, was a pretty cool thing, how can deep expertise in a certain area get an organization into trouble? Yeah, you know, in order to make anything of value, you have to have some sense of your field. You need the basics down for sure. You can't just come in and be a dilettante and change everything. But there's this point at which what we know and the more that we know becomes a trap. We get these really developed knowledge networks and everything that we see, new information comes in, we fit it into sort of old patterns and we start becoming blind to the world. So if you're playing a game like chess where the rules never change on a two-dimensional board, it's great. The more expertise, the better your intuition becomes. You just keep sticking with it. But when the rules are always changing, like our business environment now, having, being attached to a single way of thinking and processing information can make experts blind. In fact, some studies of experts show that they can be worse than random chance, especially when they get their egos involved in a certain way of seeing the world. So I always talk about gather as much knowledge, get as much expertise as you can, but never identify yourself or pitch yourself as an expert. Aim to be an explorer. Is expert the, is the, almost these days is a trap. Yeah. You really yeah. have to think about it that way. Now you make a point in the book of, of encouraging the reader to seek out unlikely allies possibly even competitors, to come together and work together on projects, solve problems, develop services, whatever. I mean, that's a great idea. But can you share a story, a real story, about where something like this has really paid off or worked in a very big way? Yeah, I was amazed to find, as someone who worked in a company that was always hiring for cultural fit, finding people that we felt comfortable with and we thought we could get along well with, you know, what a trap that can be and how sometimes working with people that you really don't approve of or don't like can open up new possibilities. So I talked to this Reverend Jeffrey Brown in Boston. He was part of what's called the Boston Miracle, where they brought murder rates down in the most dangerous neighborhoods by 65%. And he was seeing all these killings in his neighborhood, was trying to reach the at-risk youth so he could keep them out of the gangs. He wasn't getting anywhere. When he actually reached out 
and talked to the kids who were doing the killings and decided to collaborate with them, that's when they told him exactly what was going on in the streets that he was totally not access to. And this is somebody who's, you know, he's a preacher, so he's got some pretty strong moral beliefs in killing being wrong. But he went and collaborated with his enemies. All these solutions immediately became unlocked that he couldn't see while he was still demonizing them. So, you know, that's, that's an extreme example, but often bringing people into our company who are our fiercest critics or maybe see the world through a different political lens can really make us understand our customers and the wider world a lot more as opposed to being so internally focused on our own culture. I'm a bit of a nerd myself, and I spend a certain amount of time talking to people who are in the space of figuring out where artificial intelligence is going as it relates to regular business and regular leadership and whatnot. And and I'm interested in your opinion. As, As more and more businesses and people in business become reliant upon algorithms and artificial intelligence capabilities, where do gut feelings come into play in this world where we're, you know what I mean, we're becoming even more reliant on that type of thing? Yeah, you know, gut feelings are really important. A lot of surveys of top business executives will show that they rely on gut instinct even more than data or advice from management journals. So why is that? It's because about 80% of what we take in from the environment, we don't process consciously, we process it subconsciously, and we'll get these bursts of information coming to the surface that are really insightful because we're doing all this deep processing. The problem is that it can be replete with bias. So we might love an idea, not because we're seeing some deep pattern, but because the person who presented it is someone who looks like us or thinks like us, or because that's what worked 20 years ago, somewhere in the back of our memory for some competitor. So what we need to do is really understand that intuition is powerful, but all the data now that we're getting helps us really test our guts. So you should really trust your gut. And if you have an idea that really excites you, or it seems like it makes a lot of sense, you should put it at the front of the line for evaluation. But you should never just invest in it without trying small tests. And now the world and all the data that we get gives us so much opportunity to do that. So a lot of the intuition researchers I talk to really say it's that trust but verify idea. And that gut intuition plus data gathering is what gives humans still the advantage over the machines. Maybe not for long. You know, there's no end to where artificial intelligence could take us. All right, fine. You're a science fiction (laughs) fan yourself. I can tell that. I can tell. I'm interested, given your background as a film, apparently a filmmaker or part of a filmmaking team or whatever, how important are the stories that people tell potential customers, potential partners, that they tell management, but also how important are the stories people tell themselves about who they are and where they're going and their journeys and stuff like that? You know, I think identity is incredibly important. There's all kinds of studies about how we form identities and then we do everything we can to try to live up to those role models of ourselves that we create. And really those role models are created by the stories that we tell. So one big theme of the book is how we deal with anxiety because anxiety comes up in the process of change and creation all the time. There are a lot of stories out there that great innovators don't feel anxiety when the reality is that everyone does and that's just a natural response to change. If we tell ourselves stories of when we've had great breakthroughs in the face of change, we'll always see that moving towards our fears is what allowed us to overcome those challenges. If we reframe anxiety as fuel for creativity, we have that ability to move towards it and not always shrink back to the safest solution we can find. Mm -hmm. So if you tell a story like that to yourself and to your team, it actually is called reframing, and it really has a powerful psychological effect. In the same way, if you want to allow for more rule-breaking in your organization, which many creative organizations now are trying to foster, just saying, well, we have a policy where it's okay to break the rules every once in a while. That doesn't do anything. But if you tell stories about people who did it well and who improved the organization in that rule-breaking, 
people see like this is not just a theory, but it's actually a way that you get noticed here. So telling stories organizationally is incredibly important. It's how you define yourself. It's how you define your organization and your purpose. And so you can't do enough of that. Yeah, but also, do, or do you agree that not every story needs a happy ending either? Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, well, they're, right? Well, stories are, you know, two things. They're either inspirational or they're cautionary tales. Many of our favorite stories are called the reality simulators. You don't have to go through this problem because you heard about someone else who did right. and now you don't have to. So, sure. yeah, we don't need to tell only positive stories in our organizations. You make a big deal out of the need for speed, it being an essential factor in this approach, whereas other people who I've interviewed who've sat there, talked into that microphone, are kind of like, we're all in too big of a hurry. We need to just slow down and reflect. Okay. Why is the need for speed an essential factor to to what you're saying? I think also I am saying that we need to slow down in many ways and open up more space. It's that need for speed that makes us rush to the safe solution. You know, you get into a, a bind and you feel that you must act right away. A lot of the creativity sciences show, though, that if you give yourself as much possible time to generate possible solutions and to refine them, and then execution is a smaller amount of your time, you're going to get better results as opposed to let's get a provisional idea, let's get it out there, let's do something right now so we have maximum time to execute. That actually leads to a lot of cycles of error and failure. So some of the top creatives will just say we will hold ourselves here even though we know we need to act. We will hold ourselves in this ideation and refinement phase longer than feels comfortable so that we can get to a shorter but a more effective execution phase. I just heard a cool podcast interview. I think it was yesterday. And the person made a a kind of a huge deal out of, you know what? Great ideas are cheap. You know, the difficult thing is the execution. If you're writing a book or you're doing a movie or you're doing a website or building an app, it's like there are probably 1,800 people plus out there that have that very same idea right now. It's like who brings it to market first? Yeah, and I think that that's why fixed thinking is so problematic because even if you have a great idea and then you just bulldoze your way to trying to produce it and you're not taking those important signals from the environment, it will never really get to market. You know, a great idea is just a vision that actually needs to meet the world in a way that's nimble and reacts as it meets the world. So even writing a book, you know, you put a book in, sure. in print form, you can't change it. Sure. Uh, that's why it's really important to kind of test your ideas sure. before it winds up out in the world. Yeah, but like as Seth Godin says, you got to ship. Yeah. You got to ship something, you know? Yeah. Here at the AMA, our noble cause is to help new managers, is to help people who are just taking on the role of leadership or management, some people who aspire to leadership, or a place where they can go to sort of become comfortable with those new unusual skills and approaches and best practices that they really didn't have to fuss over when they were awesome all-star individual contributors. What's in this book for a new manager or an aspiring leader? Yeah, there's a lot of thinking in the book and a lot of stories that I tell about some of the counterintuitive insights that came out of the research that I did. So I'll offer a few of them. One of them is people prefer to follow humble leaders who are vulnerable and honest versus leaders who are powerful and Mm self-aggrandizing. So, you know, we get into those roles of leadership and we think that no one's going to respect us unless we put ourselves up on some kind of pedestal and and act flawless. In fact, people really believe more in leaders who have more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a hard lesson for people to learn, especially when you're just just starting out. But it relieves us of quite a lot of pressure. Another thing is that I think early in leadership, we often try to make everybody feel valued by making sure there's a sort of niceness and agreeableness in the teams that we create. And we be very agreeable with the people that we lead. Agreeableness actually leads to low creativity and leads to groupthink. So the role of a leader is really to get a group 
to productively disagree and fight it out while still deeply respecting each other as human beings. And that's a difficult thing for people to internalize, but when you make people feel safe outside of the arena by really building that team, showing your regard for each other, incentivizing not just results, but good process, and then you throw them in the arena where you can fight it out, people then have that sense of security so that really good data can come out of these kind of warring over ideas, which is really important. Finally, I'll say that there's a fear that people have that if they go on gut instinct without being able to justify every idea immediately with data, Mm -hmm. that leadership will not be shown because we shouldn't be discussing just our feelings. We should only be discussing what we know. It's just really important that leaders allow that space for gut instinct and intuition to, to surface good ideas of the group because there is a lot of hidden genius there. As I said, you need to be able to then test it, but to not force everybody to justify their ideas as a leader in terms of hard data. So it's take care of your team outside the arena. Make sure they have everything they need and they know that you're supportive and they know they can support each other. But in the arena, you know, just enable them to be gladiators and enable them to be the intellectual and creative warriors you need them to be. Yeah, and I I talk about gamifying dissent. So, you know, that's a really powerful, I'm sure you've, you've heard of red teams and this kind of thing where we take a certain amount of time where the goal is actually to tear each other down. But because it's really a role play, people feel that they can attack ideas without attacking each other and that's really important so that you don't sink into this sort of mono thinking also it's important that leaders speak last in meetings and not start out by setting the tone with an idea and then let everybody else kind of play with it that that leads to this thing called uh, shared information bias Mm -hmm. where everybody is going to go and just repeat what the leader said without even noticing that they're doing it so you know they say that meetings should be longer and leaders should speak last so that the ideas from the edges that not everybody holds, but you know, maybe the keys to breakthrough actually do come forward because often people furthest from the center of power hold those unusual ideas. That's cool. We've been speaking to Jonah Sachs, and his book is Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Jonah, thanks for your time, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. It's been great being here. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 